Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. On this episode, we talk about sola scriptura. This is the idea that the Bible is the sole rule of faith, that we can interpret the Bible, that Christ left us with a Bible to help us understand and guide our faith. I'm joined by Ken Hensley, a former Baptist pastor and convert to the Catholic faith, to talk about this topic. And hey, I want to say this because it is the Cordial Catholic Podcast. And listening back to the interview as I was editing it, I'm worried that maybe Ken and I might sound a little bit arrogant or rude or indignant when we're talking about Sola Scriptura. And I hope that's not the case, and I hope I'm just being a little bit oversensitive maybe to how we sound in the interview, because truly, neither Ken nor I mean to disparage anybody who believes in Sola Scriptura. I think in reality, this is something that both of us wrestled with in our journeys into the Catholic faith, and we're excited to share these insights and ideas with the audience. Hopefully, that's the way it comes across, and if not, drop me a line at cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and continue this conversation. Anyway, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy. With me today is Ken Hensley. Ken came to faith in Christ at the age of 22 in a non-denominational Protestant environment. He received his MA in Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, and was ordained in the American Baptist denomination, where he served as a pastor for 11 years. Ken became a Catholic and since has gone on to work for the Coming Home Network International, supporting other converts making their way into the church, and is an adjunct professor in biblical studies at the St. John Seminary for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Hi, Ken. Thanks for being on the show. Hello there, Albert. It's good to be here. So I'm excited to talk to you today about the idea of sola scriptura and I know in my own journey into the Catholic Church from uh, being a non-denominational evangelical, even early on in my faith journey, uh, I was still in youth group when I encountered this problem. Somebody in youth group brought in the idea of Calvinism, and suddenly here we were, a bunch of high school kids pouring over our Bibles, trying to understand how to interpret these difficult verses, and, and we were in high school. And now, I didn't know back then what to call it that we were trying to use the Bible alone to understand our theology. But now I understand mm -hmm. this idea of, of sola scriptura and the challenge this presented mm -hmm. to me back then, even early on in my faith journey. So mm -hmm. I want to get into that with you, but I want to start maybe if you could tell us a little bit about your, uh, your faith journey into the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. and maybe mm -hmm. if sola scriptura played a, a large role in, in that or, or some kind of role in that. Well... Uh, the, the shortest answer is it did, but let me go back then. Um, I came to Christ, you know, I, I experienced a radical conversion to Christ when I was 22 years old, and it was in a completely non-denominational, uh, in fact, it was, at a, it was in a, at a home Bible study uh, that I was attending that, that, that I became interested and I began to study and to learn more. And so um, my conversion was into a totally non-denominational form of Christianity, 
um, I, w- I was immediately on fire uh, for Christ, and I was on fire to learn. And so I began reading and, and uh, theology and biblical studies and all that. I wound up going to a Bible college and getting a degree in my, my undergraduate in Bible and theology, and then going to Fuller Theological Seminary, where I got a master's degree in theology. And then I became a pastor, and I was a pastor for 11 years, um, very much involved in biblical studies and expository preaching and whatnot. And and the thing that you mentioned re- with, with regard to Calvinism, um, I began to go through that pretty early on without realizing the implications that it had for Sola Scriptura. The only kind of Christianity that I knew from the beginning was Bible-oriented. You, If you want to know anything about the revealed truth of God, you just go to the Bible and you read it. And now, at, at first I thought you just read it. And then I began to realize, well, I, have, I guess you have to interpret it also because— uh, one guy has one view and another guy has another view. And I, I went through myself about three or four permutations of Christian theology in the first 10 years um, of my life as a Christian, um, going from one thing and then I'd read a book or I'd read some other books. And I go, well, I, I think these guys may be right. And then so I moved from non-denominational Christianity to a, a very Puritan for, uh, focus, the Puritans loved the Puritans for a few years, and then had this big hardcore decision of, am I a Baptist Puritan or am I a Presbyterian Puritan? Had a friend that I really admired, a teacher who was an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor who wanted me to become Presbyterian. So I I was going back back and forth. And so on an experiential level, you know, I, I, I was facing the fact that well, that there, I've, I'll come back to this a little bit later, but that there are problems with social, uh, with them, sola scriptura. I was going to say social security. There are problems with that too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but that there, but there are, are problems. Now, my conversion to the Catholic faith began. Um, I didn't have the Catholic worldview even in my mind, um, but I found out that an old friend of mine, an acquaintance from seminary days, had become Catholic, and I was just shocked by it. And so I listened to his recorded conversion story, and that made me curious enough to basically to say to myself, how could I have been studying the Bible this long and studying Christian theology this long? And I basically don't know the case for the Catholic faith. And so it was more a curiosity that sent me then um, into reading and listening to debates and all that. And the short version is, in four uh, four years, uh, I after four years, about four years, I resigned my ministry as a Baptist pastor uh, to enter the Catholic Church. And during that time, yes, Sola Scriptura began to have more and more of a role in my um, in my conversion. First of all, it was just, as I began to study Catholicism, it, it was just that realization that, you know what, I'm preaching and I'm te- teaching constantly, and there was an entire worldview uh, that I was unfamiliar with. Or that I, if I thought I was familiar with it, it was really stereotypes that I had, straw men and what and whatnot. And so I'm listening to Catholic theologians and I'm listening to Catholic apologists say, Jesus never meant for Christianity to be uh, Bible-only centered. That isn't the kind of church he established. There wasn't this, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to inspire a book for you through these apostles, and then I'm going to toss this book out into the middle of the, of the Christian church crowd and basically say, do your best. And uh, and so more and more, uh, Protestantism began to look that way to me, like a bunch of people just doing their best. And I knew I wasn't the brightest, and I knew I wasn't the holiest. I didn't pray as much as others. And yet, um, 
right up the street, you know, there's a Presbyterian pastor, sincere, godly man, contradicting me. Around the corner, there's a Lutheran contradicting me. There's a Methodist, Nazarene, everybody on earth's contradicting me. And I'm sitting in my study every week, and, and I'm studying, and then I'm going into my pulpit every Sunday morning, and I'm telling my congregation what I think the Bible teaches with full realization that literally there's no one above me in terms of authority. No mm-hmm. one. It's just me reading scholars and making my decisions and telling them what to believe. So, yeah, I began to feel very, very weak. Uh, I began to feel as though this couldn't possibly be what our Lord had in mind in establishing a church. Right. Yeah. I think an unawareness of the Catholic Church, maybe I'll put it that way, because I was the same way as you, that comes from a sola scriptura view, a Bible alone view of Christianity as well. Because if you don't think, I mean, I've heard this from a lot of different people, a lot of different converts to the Catholic faith, that you essentially treat Christianity as if the Bible was written, was delivered to you, and then nothing happened in the subsequent, you know, 2,000 years afterwards. And so, of course, you you don't even think about the Catholic Church because it... It doesn't exist in the in the timeline, the biblical timeline, the history of Christianity. That timeline, it doesn't it doesn't exist yeah. because the Bible is all we had. It's all we needed, and and nothing happened after that. Yeah, I I, I think that's a real good point. You you know if you know anything about history, you know as a Protestant and a Bible centered Christian, you know that Catholicism exists, and you know that the Church was Catholic for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years until the time of the Reformation. But you kind of say, well, what you kind of say to yourself, this is what most say, and this is what I said, what you kind of say to yourself is, well, the church that Jesus founded was essentially like my church. It was basically a non-denominational band of Christians centered around the Bible, mm-hmm. or, you know, or what existed in the Bible at that time. And then, and then it very, very slowly morphed into this aberration, you know, this monstrosity that we call the Catholic Church, and, and you tend to think uh, that it happened somewhere around the time of Constantine, you know, the fourth century. So that gives you some leeway because you're thinking, well, 400 years, yeah, the church could morph and, and could depart from the simple biblical truths and then become the Catholic Church. Of course, one of the things that, that really strikes most converts and, and another angle of what struck me is that if you actually go back and read the earliest documents of the church after the apostles— I mean, if you really read Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and all those, mm-hmm. you start you start getting you start getting this feeling of man, they sound like they're Catholic from the beginning, <laughs> you know. And yep. you know, and Ignatius, for instance, was a disciple of John. Ignatius is a disciple of John, and he sounds Catholic. So that's one of the things you begin to realize is, is that. It's not as so easy as to simply say that Catholicism came a long time later. You basically end up having to posit almost an immediate uh, apostasy, which is which is strange because that's what the uh, cults are all based on. You know, Mormonism is based on the idea that the church almost immediately apostatized, and, it, and, and you wait like 19 centuries for Joseph Smith to come along and straighten things out. Seventh-day Adventists are the same way. The church immediately apostatized, and you have to wait for Ellen G. White to come along. The Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the same thing, an immediate apostasy brought back to reality by Judge Rutherford, and, and mainly in the 19th century. These these things come about, I think, when you try and treat um, your faith as solely defined by the Bible and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And you, you have mm-hmm. to, in a way, kind of negate the rest of the history that followed the Bible, and even the Bible's development. Well, that's what... Um, you know, John Henry Newman, 
in his very famous work, The Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine, he begins that whole work by saying um, that Protestantism has always recognized that, that it has a problem with history. And, and what he says is the evidence that Protestantism has a problem with history is the fact that it's always trying to get rid of it. It's always trying to discard the, the history, particularly of the early church, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth centuries, because it just realizes that the, if you go into the early church, you're not looking at Protestantism. And that's where um, Newman said to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. Right. And, and that it's easy to show that the early church was not Protestant. And uh, there's one more quotation I really like where he says, if such a system of, this is my paraphrase, but he says, if such a system of doctrine as Protestants believe existed in the early church, it has been clean swept away from history as if by a flood. There's just no evidence of it. You can go into the second, third, fourth centuries, and you can find plenty of material about the Arians or the Marcionites or the Montanists, you know, all these other heretical groups, but you just can't find a Presbyterian church anywhere. And I don't mean set up with a steeple and looking like Presbyterian. I mean theology. You can't find a group that, that you could identify like, oh, these guys are Baptists or these guys are Nazarene. No, you, you can't find Protestant churches all right, so let's talk about uh, the idea of sola scriptura, first of all, being something that is scriptural. So is the idea that the Bible alone kind of defines the Christian faith, is that even taught by the Bible itself? What would you say to a question like that? Well, I'd say no. That's the, that, that's the beginning of it. In, in fact, um, I get my definitions of sola scriptura from Protestant scholars, and there, there's a book called... Um, Let's see, what's it? I've got it right here. Roman Catholics and Evangelicals Agreements and Differences by Norman Geisler and Ralph McKenzie, a couple of Protestant scholars. And the way that they summarize Sola Scriptura is to say what they believe is that the Bible, nothing more, nothing else, nothing, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, is all that is necessary for faith and practice. So uh, to kind of unwind that a bit more, Sola Scriptura is the belief that when it comes to revealed truths, not, not truths of history or science or other things you could learn, but when it comes to God's revelation to us, revealed truths, that everything God wants us to know, this is how I would have said it, everything that God wants us to know is there in the pages of Scripture. And not only is everything there, but everything there is there in a way that is clear enough that that a Christian can come can go there and read it and find it, right in some kind of plain sense way that can easily be understood. Yeah, well, that was the doctrine at the time of the Reformation. It was called the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity. Right. Because I'm, I mean, because if you're going to say that Albert and Ken and a million others like us can can just go to the Bible and just read it to get our theology, then you ha you have to believe that it's clear enough. Um, you can't say hey, we're all going to go to the Bible to get our theology, and by the way, it's really confusing and obtuse, and it's almost, <laughs> impo it's almost impossible to understand it correctly. You know, you can't say that. So yeah, yeah it, it's the belief that everything is there. We, we, we can call that material sufficiency. It's, it's sufficient. Everything is there, but then formally sufficient as well, meaning you don't need anything else. You, you do not need, um, well, you know, in Catholicism, we talk about the three-legged stool of authority that you've got Scripture and you've got tradition, and you have a magisterium that can meet and counsel and can decide when, when issues become complicated and the church is disagreeing with itself. 
So they would say, no, you don't need that. You, you only need scripture. That's all you need. And I would say the New Testament does not teach that. You can't find the New Testament teaching that. Yeah, so I, if the New Testament doesn't teach that, where would you say that that idea would then come from? Because if we're saying that the Bible is our sole rule of faith or, or solely sufficient mm-hmm. for understanding our faith, mm-hmm. how, I mean, you talk about the three-legged stool approach of the Catholic Church. Um, it sounds like the Protestant Church would have one, one leg, which is the Bible. So how right. do you how would you sit on that one legged stool? Where does where does that support come from, if the, it's nowhere to be found well, in the Bible? Well, okay, your question is a really good one. I mean, it's it, it's a really important question. But let me get at it by talking a little bit more about what the New Testament does show us. Okay, and then and then I'll give you my answer to that question. Well, where does it come from then? If it's not taught in the Bible. If you can't find a verse that says, by the way, the Bible only is going to function as our infallible rule of faith and practice, then where does it come from? Why do Protestants believe it is a question you're asking. But let let me go back a little bit, because this is what really got me. When I began to study what what we actually find in the New Testament, you know, ask the question, what is the practice of Jesus, the apostles, the earliest believers that are living during New Testament times? You find this three-legged stool. You find that Scripture is definitely viewed as authoritative, and at the time, we we're talking basically the Old Testament Scriptures. You know, Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness, and three times he answers, it is written, right? Mm-hmm. And so Scripture is viewed as authoritative. Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. But So Scripture is definitely viewed as being inspired and authoritative in the New Testament. But also... The oral teaching of Jesus and the apostles is viewed as being inspired and authoritative. Jesus doesn't always say, when confronted, it is written, and quote a passage from the Old Testament. Often Jesus says, you know, verily, verily, I say to you, and he goes on to speak. And we find the same thing with the apostles. You know, the idea that when Paul went into Ephesus or Corinth or any of the cities he went to, the idea that when he spoke, he, he his teaching was only authoritative when he was quoting an Old Testament passage. No one believes that. You know, Protestants also believe that when Paul went to Ephesus, and in Acts chapter 20, we learned that he spent three years there teaching, day and night, he says, with tears, communicating to the Ephesians, the whole counsel of God, that when Paul taught, what he taught was authoritative as well, not not just what he wrote. And so, you have that famous passage for Catholic apologists in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, where Paul says to the Thessalonian believers, stand firm, hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by word of mouth or in writing or by letter from us. So just if we ask the question, what is authoritative to those living during the New Testament? Well, Scripture is authoritative. The oral teaching of the apostles is viewed as authoritative. And these Thessalonians are supposed to stand firm and hold fast to this, whether it was by word of mouth or it was in writing. And by the way, I, th- I think it's so instructive there that when Paul goes to hand on his authority to Timothy later on, as he's preparing to leave the world, he doesn't say to Timothy, you know, quickly go gather up every letter I wrote and, you know, go to Office Depot or whatever and make a bunch of copies right away because as soon as I die, Everything I said to you is going to be worthless. Instead, he says to Timothy, the things you have heard me teach in the presence of many witnesses, 
the third leg, you have the church. And where that comes out most clearly is the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Because even in the earliest church, you have this debate arising. As soon as Peter, you know, uh, is is given the vision of the sheep coming down from heaven, and he goes to Cornelius' house in Acts 10, and he's preaching to a bunch of Gentiles, and he's never even gone into the house of a Gentile, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and Peter's like, how, how can we forbid baptism if the Holy Spirit has fallen on them? Well, a debate breaks out in the church where the more, um, I'll just say, the more Jewish-minded early Christians, the more pharisaical-minded, are saying, these Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be saved, and they must keep all the, the customs of Moses. And, uh, they must become Jews in order to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas are out there saying, that's not what's happening with us, no. And anyway, in Acts 15, they meet the, the apostles and, and the elders, the, the lead, leadership of the church, they debate this issue, and they decide, no, um, Gentile converts do not need to become Jews to be saved. They don't have to be circumcised and keep all the customs of Moses. No. And this is what really struck me. They agree to this, and they write a letter which funct functions essentially as a decree, and they send this letter out to all the churches, and the letter tells them what their decision is. And it includes these words. It says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And then they give their, their um, decision. And you don't find all the Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, you know, receiving this letter. You don't find them saying, well, we will study our Bibles and we'll get back to you, you know, uh, as to whether we think you're on the right track or not. Instead, the text says in Acts chapter 15, it says they received it with joy. So, if you look at the practice of the New Testament, you have the three-legged stool. You have the authority of Scripture, the authority of apostolic teaching, and the authority of the, the magisterium of the time when it meets in council to decide an issue of controversy uh, and to formally send out a notice. Okay, so, so back to your question. So if this is the practice, I mean, if this is what we actually find in the New Testament, then why do Protestants believe in sola scriptura? Why do they throw away the second leg of the stool, throw away the third leg of the stool, kick you know kick them out, and just imbalance on this one leg? And the and the answer is because they no longer trust. They no longer. I mean, if you look at Luther and Calvin, they no longer trust that the oral teaching of the apostles can be faithfully preserved or could be, and they no longer trust that the magisterium of the church can meet in council and make these decisions. They lost trust in that, and so they went back to the only thing that they trust, which is the inspired Scripture. No, the one thing that I ran into when I was looking at the, the formation of the canon and what and church versus tradition is I you hear the idea that, well, it wasn't the church that put together the Bible. It was these groups of believers. It was Christians themselves that believed these books to be popular, to be inspired. And it was the kind of a, that popular movement that put together the New, the New Testament and the, the scriptures. It was this popular movement that put together the Bible. It wasn't necessarily the church... Uh, putting together the church affirmed that the, that popular yeah. movement, but it was it was Christians themselves that found these books to be inspired, and it was Christians reading these books, not the church mm -hmm. telling them what books to read. How would you answer something like that? Well, uh, I would I begin by saying, okay, are you saying that each Christian individually was led by Christ to pick the right books, and then they go, no, no, I don't mean that. 
I just mean it was a pop, your words, it was popularly believed and all that. And I would say, well, I do, of course, Christ does work through his people. And so, of course, in a general sense, the Holy Spirit is leading the church toward this. But are you? But if you're not saying each individual Christian came to it, are you saying that every group of a hundred came to it? Uh, how about every group of a thousand? And they can't say that because the fact is that there that there was dispute, and the fact is that there was disagreement. So that's where the magisterium does step in and solve an issue where, to some degree, there is not agreement on it. Yeah, if everyone in the church, you know, believed in the doctrine of the Trinity without there being any problems at all, then you could say that, you know, you would say, yeah, the Holy Spirit led the church to the doctrine of the Trinity. But the truth is there were heretical views of the Trinity. There were some on the tritheist side that were saying, hey, come on, there are three gods. And there are some on the other, the modalist side, that were saying there's only one God who just appears in different ways, different modes, like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this had to be solved. There wasn't agreement. So um, I view that kind of talk as just an escape from what is patently obvious you know, um, God is the one who inspired the books. God is the one who determined which books are inspired. And I would say, well, that's obviously true. We know that, objectively speaking, the books are inspired because God inspired them. But the very question we're asking is, how do we come to know which ones are inspired? And there's no doubt that the Holy Spirit led the church. What was the method by which he led the church to a conclusion? He didn't lead each individual Catholic to the conclusion. He didn't say, get to, all of you get together in every city and have a vote. And, you know, he didn't do it that way. And he didn't, and he certainly didn't do it by asking all the Catholic world, raise your hand if you think Hebrews belongs in the Bible, because there was about 25% of the books were in dispute. So the Holy Spirit led, yes. And the, and the, the councils, yeah, they only affirmed what was true, but the, and the Holy Spirit led them to affirm it. We're not saying they decided Right. And and something that I found is as soon as you go back to, and this is in an earlier episode of, mm-hmm. of the podcast, as soon as you go back to the scriptures alone, you have to concede that the church put together the scriptures in the first place. So if you can't trust the church that put together the scriptures, how can you trust the scriptures? And you end up in this kind of loop, this kind of death spiral, if you're going to be really honest with uh, how you're treating both the scripture and the church, I think. This is a primary problem. And, and in fact, I spent four days, uh, three days in Death Valley about a month ago, camping in Death Valley out here with, um, with, with, the, with the gentleman that was my associate pastor when I was a Baptist minister for the last eight years, and another fellow from my evangelical congregation. And we talked about this in, in great depth. I, I can't say I got anywhere, but I raised this issue. I said, look, if you don't believe in the magister- or if you don't trust the magisterium of the early church anymore to make decisions that are binding and true. I, I said, you know, I went over the history quickly. You know that the 27 books in our New Testament, about 25% of those books were in dispute to one degree or another in the early centuries of the church. In fact, Bruce Metzger, who's a renowned New Testament, Protestant New Testament scholar, he's the one who gave me that number. About 25% of the books were in dispute. Should they be in the Bible? I mean, should they be considered in, inspired and apostolic or not? Book of Revelation, Second Peter, Jude, James, or a few others. Hebrews, because no one knew the author of Hebrews. And, um, and of course, there were a lot of other books circulating at the time that, that some thought should be in the New Testament. The Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, a few other books. And so when you think about it, 
the early church, they don't know that there's going to be 27 New Testament books. No one knows the number. It could be 35, could be 100, could be three, could be seven. So when you don't know the number you're, you don't even know the number you're shooting for, you know, you know, uh, they obviously had to go back and they had to ask the question like, which books have been received from the beginning as having been written by apostles? Which books um, come to us with the power of the Spirit? But as soon as you start looking at these kinds of criteria, well, you've already left Sola Scriptura because Sola Scriptura says the way we know revealed truth, the only way we know revealed truth is that it's in the Bible. But if you start saying, well, how do I know Matthew's an inspired book or how do I know Hebrews is? And you say, oh, well, what we're going to do is we're going to see what church have the churches accepted these books. You're already into tradition. So anyway, the early councils used tradition and, and other things, but they used tradition to make a decision as magisterium in the synods of Hippo and Carthage and Rome and whatnot in the latter fourth century. And they decided. So, so I'm there in Death Valley with my friends and I, I present all this stuff. And I said to him, I said, look, do you believe that the Holy Spirit led those councils to a decision that is infallibly true, that is true, is binding on all, all Christians? Yes or no? And they said, yes. And I said, but, but, but you don't believe in the magisterium where the Holy Spirit's things. And they said, well, in this case, the Holy Spirit had to lead the church to an infallible conclusion because getting the canon right, that, that's the foundation of everything. If we don't have the canon, this is the way they were answering me. If we don't have the canon of Scripture right, if we don't know which books should be in the Bible and which ones should not be in the Bible for sure, then we can't do theology. We can't, you know, we're, we're sunk. So the Holy Spirit had to lead that time. It had to lead the church that time. And so, yeah, I, I, I agree that the Holy Spirit led the church. And so I said, I said, well, does it bother you at all that at, that at those same councils they decided on the Old Testament canon as well? And it's the Catholic canon that has seven more books than yours. And he said, no. And I said, why doesn't that bother you? And he said, well, sometimes the Holy Spirit leads and sometimes the Holy Spirit doesn't lead. That's such an interesting, and I've and I've heard a similar thing with the with the Trinity because at the same council that affirmed the nature of Jesus, also gave Mary the title Mother of God, and yes. so I've often spoken to to evangelical friends or colleagues or people who read my blog or something who reject that title for Mary and reject the idea of a Mother of God. Well, then I say, well, what about the Trinity? Because at the same council that affirmed that title for for Mary would have affirmed the Trinity. And I heard a similar response to what you would say. Well, no, it's it can be right sometimes, but not not other times. Yeah, and so my my response to them at that point was, I said, so so basically, you're saying that when when you agree with the decision, the Holy Spirit led it, and when you don't agree with the decision, that's a that's a situation which the Holy Spirit didn't lead. You know, it's a circular argument. It's purely subjective. But not only is uh, not only is it illogical in in that sense that it produces this circular reasoning thing, but it doesn't fit Sola Scriptura, because you just told me that the only standard for knowing for knowing revealed truth is that it's in the Bible, is that it's clearly taught in the Bible. And yet, as soon as I ask you, well, how do you know which books belong in the Bible? You jettison Sola Scriptura, and you start talking about tradition, and which churches accepted these books, and you start talking about subjective leading of the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, my sheep hear my voice and Jesus led his church, you know, to recognize, to recognize the correct books. And you completely leave Sola Scriptura and you utilize these other criteria to get to your canon. 
you know, and then and then if I say to you, okay, well, it, it's true that my sheep hear my voice, but do you mean that each sheep, like each individual Christian, were they led by the Holy Spirit to the right canon? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, they were led through what? What means? Did Jesus lead the church through what? Oh, through these councils? Well, isn't that exactly what Catholicism teaches? You know, and I, I remember when I was still a Protestant, you know, talking to Catholic apologists about this, and one of them said to me, you know, Ken, did the Holy Spirit lead those councils to an infallible conclusion? I mean, a conclusion that you can trust as binding, yes or no? And I recognized then that I was, I was hung on the horns of a dilemma. If I say yes, then they can say, welcome to the Catholic Church. <laughs> this is basically what Catholics, this is all that, it, this is what Catholics believe. Yeah. And if I say no, I'm I'm with Luther. Councils are fallible; they make mistakes. We you know we can't know for sure. Then they can say to me, "Well, to be a consistent Protestant, then not only do you have to interpret the Bible yourself, you have to f- put it together yourself. You have to figure out for yourself whether the books you have in the Bible are the right ones. Why why should you trust these councils? Why should you trust tradition? You know maybe tradition's wrong." And maybe some of these more liberal scholars that say we should throw First and Second Timothy out, and and uh, Paul didn't write Ephesians and whatnot. Maybe maybe they're right. How do you know? So, so yeah. Uh, getting back to your first question to me, this whole thing had a powerful influence on me during the time that I was studying the Catholic faith. You know, kind of the realization dawning on me more and more that either Jesus established a church that has authority in it, a church on earth. That, that possesses some some ability to authoritatively decide things, or it's just up for grabs, you know. I totally understandable. I I once wrote an article for my blog, uh, tongue in cheek, that said Creflo Dollar made me a Catholic because Creflo Dollar is a famous. I'm not sure if he's even around anymore, but at the time he was he was a prosperity gospel uh-huh. preacher who looked at the Bible and he interpreted certain passages to mean that you should pray for all kinds of big cars and jets and money and mansions. <laughs> and I said, well, if he can look at the same scriptures that I'm looking at and he can interpret them this way, and I can look at the exact same passage and interpret it a different way, then there's something wrong with this system of just looking at the Bible and us each coming to our own conclusion. Mm-hmm, there's something mm-hmm. wrong with that system. There must be something beyond that to help us to interpret the Bible. Yeah, and the only answer that that they can give really is a poor answer. It's just sort of well you're not studying right. Right. And I am. You know, I I was in um I was in Haiti a year ago speaking at a Catholic conference and the 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 priest that was functioning as my in, interpreter uh for speaking, he and I met with a couple of young very devout Seventh-day Adventists guys there because the cults are making big headways in in Haiti formerly catholic Haiti but making big headways and anyway i spent about a half an hour rehearsing this stuff we're talking about right here to these two young guys about sola scriptura and the problems the problem with it and the fact that you know you can study really hard and come out with x i study really hard and come out with y someone else studies really hard who has a phd in new testament studies can read greek like you and i you know read or like i read english and they read french and um, come out with a totally different thing. And they looked at me, Seventh-day Adventists, and they said, well, they're not studying the Bible correctly. If you learn to study it correctly, then you come out with Ellen G. White's point of view and our point of view. And, you, you, you know, what can you say to that, except that you're not getting it yet. You're not really 
the point is not really settling into your mind yet. You know, you're not really getting it because they're good people and they're genius. They're geniuses in every one of the denominations. I find the same thing with uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. We have a couple that come to our door regularly and I'm mm-hmm. at home most of the days right now. And, and she brings her Bible and I bring my Bible and she asked me a question uh, such as, well, do you believe we'll inherit the earth when Jesus returns? And I say, oh yeah, I believe that. Right? You know, this is, mm-hmm. uh, well, do you believe that we'll all be, um, we'll all be uh, transformed and in heaven and that there'll be some people who won't be in heaven and that, you know, it's our sin that will, yeah, you know, I believe that, I believe that too. But we're looking at the same now there the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible has some translation concerns from a Catholic mm-hmm, point of mm-hmm. view but we're looking at the same at the same texts and we're mostly in in agreement um but at a point they'd be using that text for different purposes and we'd reach a point where right. well no this particular verse right. that I'm going to pick randomly out of the Psalms which talks about people inheriting the earth and and that's kind of the the <coughs> verse that we're pinning our our theology on um, mm-hmm. we as Catholics, w- you know, wouldn't view that verse in the same way, but we're both looking at the same, at the same thing, right? Yes, yes, yes. And just, and we're using it differently because we're bringing to the passage a different system of theology we already have in our heads, you know, and we're reading it through that lens. You know, I, I mentioned at the very beginning that I, that I wound up a Baptist, but that I had a teacher that was trying to make me into an Orthodox Presbyterian. Well, uh, I had an experience. This is way back when I was at Fuller Theological Seminary, long, you know, ten years before I ever gave a thought to Catholicism. Um, I had this experience where he wanted me to become Presbyterian, and the main difference was infant baptism. And so I went back and I did a, another serious study of everything in the New Testament regarding baptism. And but the two views I had in my mind are. Is believer's baptism true? You know, the Baptist point of view that you only baptize someone when they come to personal faith in Christ. You don't baptize their infant children or anything like that. And the Presbyterian point of view that agrees with Baptists in saying that baptism is just a symbolic act, you know, that symbolizes faith, our faith, but they also baptize infants. So I I read the New Testament through, looked at all the passages. I read the best scholars I could find on the Baptist view and the best on the Presbyterian view. And this is way before. I came out going, you know, I just, I, I don't think you can prove either either one from the New Testament. Now, again, I wasn't thinking about Sol Scriptura being, having problems with it or with Catholicism or anything. This is just something that happened. But I, I came away going, you know, there are some good passages that seem to support the Baptist way of thinking, and there are some good ones that seem to support infant baptism. And I almost felt like, wow, um, if I were in a Presbyterian church, then I, yeah, I just kind of fall that direction and stay Presbyterian. But I'm Baptist, and I'm in a Baptist church, so I guess I'll just continue falling in that direction. And anyway, the reason I'm telling you this is that years later, when I began to study Catholicism, and I was exposed to the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, that in baptism, it's not just a symbolic act, but that God is actually doing through through the act of baptism what is being symbolized by it. Um, then I began, then I re- read the New Testament. Well, well, I went to the old, I, I went to the early fathers. And first of all, I saw this teaching all the way through the early fathers, you know, that baptism is being viewed sacramentally as though God actually washes away sin in baptism, gives the gift of the Holy Spirit, regenerates us in baptism. And, and I'm telling you, at this point, I was just kind of going, I was remembering what had happened 10 years before when I studied baptism. 
And I didn't even have baptismal regeneration on my radar screen. I was just trying to decide between Baptist and Presbyterian. And so I went back again, and I started reading through the New Testament. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing verses. Verses are kind of jumping out at me that I, that I never even thought of before. Like Ananias saying to Paul, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. It's like suddenly I was, is this verse teaching baptismal regeneration? I mean, is it saying arise and be baptized and wash away? I mean, is he saying that Paul's sins would be washed away in baptism? I never even thought of it before. And suddenly I have this verse that looks like it's saying that. Um, another one that really got me was Acts 19, where Paul meets these believers from in uh, Ephesus, I believe. And he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, we never even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And he goes, huh, what baptism did you receive? And, and so, suddenly it struck me. He asked them if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed. They say no. Why does he ask them what baptism? I mean, why, why does his mind go to baptism? My mind would never have gone to baptism. As a Baptist preacher, I, I, I never would have said to anybody, have you received the Holy Spirit? Never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. What baptism did you receive? You know, so suddenly all these verses that seem like they could be teaching baptismal regeneration are kind of jumping off the page. And so that this is another part of the process that, that, that really just kind of humbled me into the dust because I thought to myself, oh, you know, back when I thought I was a scholar, I couldn't decide between Baptist and Presbyterian. And I wasn't even thinking about baptismal regeneration, another completely different view. And I didn't even see these verses. Now I'm seeing these verses and they sound like they're teaching this. It just made me feel like, you know what? We see in the New Testament what we want to see, and, and, and we see what, we, what we've been prepared to see. And if, if, you're, if the church you were raised in is a Baptist church, and the theology you've been taught is Baptist theology, and you think of baptism as a symbol and nothing more and all that, then when you read the New Testament, passages that support that kind of make sense to you, and passages that seem like they might not support that, you kind of just put them on the shelf as, well, that's... That's curious, but I, you know, I don't know what it means. But you don't, you, you know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and that it's, was it's my exactly what you're saying about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Absolutely, and even my dilemma as a as a teenager in youth group. Suddenly, if we're bringing in this Calvinist framework to reading our Bible, suddenly we we all see different things. Even as teenagers trying to work this out, we see different interpretations based on the theological lens that you that you bring to it. Yes, right. Yep, you're trying to no, use the ahead. same. You're trying to use the same same tool. But you have to approach it in a certain a certain perspective, and that to me gets to the idea that I've I've heard this too, and maybe you can speak to this as well. The idea of plain sense like there must be there must be some kind of plain reading of this that if you I don't know what it, what you want to say if you study hard enough like you've already been saying, or if you approach it prayerfully enough, you can read a verse and and get out what God intended that verse to mean. When I study the New Testament. I don't even think the books were written to clearly outline theology. You know, so so no, I don't think that there's a sense where if you just pray hard enough and study hard enough, you can get theology or you can get all all of theology from the writings in the New Testament. When, when you actually ask yourself, I mean, when you think about the nature of the New Testament books, okay, set aside the Gospels because they're written to tell the story of Jesus. Book of Acts is written to tell the story of the early church. We get our theology in Protestantism mainly from the epistles, right? You know, we're going to study Paul's epistles to Romans and Galatians and Ephesians or James, and we're going to construct our theology. But when you really ask yourself, what were these letters? 
Then, then I'll put it this way. What I realized was they were letters. And they were letters written typically to churches that were having a, a problem or, or several problems. And so Paul is picking up his pen, or James or Peter, whoever. He's picking up his pen to address some problems that a specific church is having. He's not picking up his pen to say, let me summarize for you my doctrine of God and, uh, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let me summarize my doctrine of Christ. And let me summarize what I teach about baptism or the, the Eucharist or anything. You know, it, it, a good illustration of this uh, is, is Ephesians. Because, again, in Acts 20, we learn that Paul spent three years in Ephesus teaching the people the whole counsel of God. He says, night and day with tears. Okay? So, in Ephesus, Paul would have taught the people his view of everything, his view of salvation, justification, his view of the church, his view of baptism. He would have performed baptisms. He would have explained what he means by baptism. But you pick up the letters of Paul, and you ask yourself, where's his teaching on baptism? And you realize, well, he makes reference to baptisms once in a while, and he there are a few statements and a few allusions to baptism, but nowhere in his writings does he, whether he says it or not, Nowhere in his writings do you have a summation of my of my doctrine of the baptism of baptism, and so actually, the way I, I I came to feel about the New Testament is that you need to read the New Testament through a lens, but the lens needs to be tradition. It needs to be the teaching of the church as it was taught by the apostles, received and passed down. You know, in other words, I mean, baptism is a good example. You read the early fathers and you see this belief. They believed that in baptism, sin is washed away, the gift of the Holy Spirit is given. This is what the churches believe. And you can read historians of doctrine, J.N.D. Kelly, a very famous one, Yaroslav Pelikan, others. You, you read scholarly historians of doctrine, and none of them will say anything different. They say the early church's doctrine of baptism is that in baptism, sin is washed, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's baptismal regeneration. Now, if you take that lens, and then you read the New Testament letters in the light of it, then as my experience, you know, was that I communicated, you see the teaching there. But no, I don't think you can go to the New Testament alone. I don't think you can prove to someone skeptical a doctrine of baptism. I don't think you can prove it. I think it's there, but I don't think you can prove it. Um, and if I could, let me give you just very quickly an illustration that I've used with people to to explain how the how the oral teaching of the apostles, tradition, and scripture kind of work, work together. Imagine that we have a church, and imagine that you are the pastor of the church, and we got like 500 other people, and you're the pastor for like 20 years, and you're very well respected. During that time, you preach and you teach night and day with tears. You know, you, you teach the whole counsel of God in sermons and lessons and everything, and then you die, okay? And so during the time you were pastor, you also wrote letters to people, you wrote letters to people who were having problems or had questions about this or that issue, and you wrote and you answered them. But your sermons were never written down. Let's just say that. So after you die, because you were so well-respected and loved as a pastor, your church gathers together the letters you wrote to people and binds them together into a book, and the church reads them. You know, uh, Now, imagine someone new comes into the church after that, and he's reading uh, Pastor Albert's letters. Um and, and and he says, I don't think that Pastor Albert believed in hell. And everyone in the church goes, what are you talking about? 
he goes, well, I, I've read all of his letters and I find some like kind of ambiguous allusions to outer darkness and talks about na gnashing of teeth, but nowhere does he clearly lay out what he's saying. You know, he doesn't say it. And then every, everyone in the church says, are you kidding? He taught entire series on the, on the doctrine. He, he's, he taught us clearly what he believed. And then the new guy says, yeah, but he's gone now. And all we have is these letters. And in these letters, you can't prove this doctrine. And so I think that we, we would be safer to take our stand and say, uh, Pastor Albert um, may or may not have believed in hell. And the church goes, well, okay, I guess if that's all we have is the letters and you can't prove it from the letters. That's kind of the view that I have, that, that on many, many, many issues, you just can't prove from the letters alone, and you need the, the teaching of the church. Like you said, these are also issues that were dealt with in the church authoritatively by the apostles, by Paul going to that church, right? He writes a letter to say, I'm going to come right. and see you, and here's what we're going to talk about. Well, then he goes there, and he stays <laughs> there for three years and addresses those issues and doesn't put that all in the letter, right? Like yeah, you said. And it, and it, yeah, and it, and it doesn't even make sense that he would need to put it all in the letter. And, and here are a couple of facts that really supported this view in my mind. Here you have 12 apostles— only three of the 12 ever write anything, which tells me that the other nine felt fine going out and preaching, establishing churches, teaching the people, dying without ever writing down, here's my doctrine of God, here's my doctrine of salvation, here's my doctrine of this or that. But it, it, and then the ones who do write um, don't, don't spell everything out, as you just said. And then you find things like this that I would tear my hair out if I um, – was really committed to the idea that the New Testament was teaching Sola Scriptura. Here, John, the Apostle John, writes these letters, these short letters, five chapters, one chapter, one chapter. Twice in those letters, Paul, I mean, John says, I have a lot more I want to tell you, but I don't want to use pen and ink. <laughs> instead, I, instead, I want to go there and I want to talk to you face to face. And so you're sitting there going, thanks a lot, John. I mean, if you had any concern for the church 100 years after you were dead or 200 or 300 or 500 or 1,000, you, would, you wouldn't say that. You would have written down. And then the same thing with Paul. You find Paul writing to the Thessalonians and saying, and talking about the man of sin, and then and, and what restrains the man of sin that will be taken out of the way. And then rather than explaining what he means, he says, he says essentially, but you know all this because I told you when I was with you. You know, see, you know, Paul does not have, what that said to me is, Paul does not have it in his mind, Sola Scriptura. He does not have it in his mind that when he leaves the earth, the only the only authority the church is going to have is what is written down. And that's why, again, he doesn't say to Timothy, print, print off my letters, make a bunch of copies. Instead, he says, guard by the Holy Spirit what's entrusted to you. And I also found that the early church thought like this. The, the, you know, the early church clearly thought like this. One of the most famous quotations is from St. Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon in, in France, um, writing around 180-something A.D., so very very early on. And he says, It is not necessary to seek among others the truth which is easily obtained from the church. For the apostles, like a rich man in a bank, deposited with her, the church, most copiously everything which pertains to the truth. And everyone who ever wishes can draw from her the drink of life. And I, I just thought to myself, I would never have said as a Baptist pastor, I would have never stood in my pulpit and said, hey, you know what? Since all the truth, the apostles deposited the truth in the church like a rich man deposits his money in the bank. And anyone who wants to know the truth can come to the church to get the truth. 
um, one more short quote, shorter quotation from um, Origen. The teaching of the church has been handed down through an order of succession through the apostles, and it remains in the churches even to the present time. That alone is to be believed as truth, which is in no way at variance with ecclesiastical and apostolic tradition. And then you have Tertullian writing, or very early on again, around 200 AD, Moreover, if there be any heresies bold enough to plant themselves in the midst of the apostolic age, heretical views planted in the midst of the apostolic age, so that they might seem to have been handed down by the apostles, heretical views, because they were from the time of the apostles, we can say to them, let them show us the origin of their churches. Let them unroll the order of their bishops, running down in succession from the beginning so that their first bishop shall have for author and predecessor some one of the apostles or of the apostolic men. Then let all the heresies offer their proof of how they deem themselves to be apostolic. You know, you, you, just, you go to the early fathers and you just find verse, or verse, you find passage after passage that's expressing this same view that, that it's not scripture alone. The scriptures are inspired and they are infallible and they are true. But the scriptures are written, you know, within the context of apostolic teaching, which was handed on through succession and is, and is viewed as being present in the church. And therefore, in order to interpret scripture aright, you have to be interpreting it through the eyeglasses of the church's teaching. And then the magisterium, the third leg, comes in to solve issues like, well, which books really are in the canon, or what is the true view of the Trinity, or what is the true view of the human and divine natures of Christ? Um, how do we answer these heretics? And so I found the three legs of the stool in the New Testament and in the early church, and there's only one church historically, there's only one church historically even claiming to operate in this way, and it's the Catholic Church. Yeah, thanks for that, Ken. I think you've done a brilliant job in showing us how this three-legged approach makes more sense than the idea of Bible alone. Uh, you've laid out this idea of the scriptures having an importance as one leg. Uh, the apostolic tradition we see in the New Testament and immediately thereafter in the early church fathers being an important leg. And then, of course, this idea of the magisterium, where the councils come together, and we see this even in the New Testament itself, with the Council of Jerusalem, as uh, the third leg. Um, thanks. I think this is a great uh, place to stop. So thanks a lot, Ken. Uh, where can people check you out? Where can people find more information about what you're doing or what you're up to? Well, I work for the Coming Home Network. Um, if you don't know what the Coming Home Network is, the 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 fellow that founded it, his name is Mar Marcus Grodi. He, he hosts the show, The Journey Home, on EWTN every week, an hour-long interview with a convert. Um, this is the ministry that he began, the, uh, the Coming Home Network. So I work helping people become Catholic, ba basically. So you can go to the Coming Home Network's website to find um, blog, blog uh, articles that I write. But if you want to get recorded talks that I've given, um, go to kennethhensley.com. KennethHensley.com, and there's a store page where you can do MP3 downloads on about 40 or 50 uh, talks that I've given on a, a lot on Reformation apologetics, a series on Calvin and stuff on Luther and the Baptists and on Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide. Maybe we can talk about that next time. Mm -hmm. um, 
Okay. That sounds great. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay. Take care. You too. God bless. God bless. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. If you like what you hear, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or wherever fine podcasts are found. Please make sure to leave a review on iTunes or Spotify if you can. That really helps to boost the profile of the show and will serve up that show to new people who are looking for new things to listen to. I would really appreciate some reviews in the iTunes Music Store, especially. Check out thecordialcatholic.com for my blog and for show notes and other things I'm writing and doing. Please like The Cordial Catholic on Facebook. Uh, tweet at Cordial Catholic on Twitter. Email any feedback to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you as well. And hey, this show is 100% listener-supported. There are no ads, obviously. And if you like the show, I would love your support. You can visit patreon.com slash cordialcatholic, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can help support this show being made and hosted and sent out every week. It's uh, about $12 a month to host this show, which isn't a lot. And if I can find 12 people to give $1 a month or anybody to give a one-time donation... That'd be fantastic, and it would help support this show and keep things going. I would love your support in any way, even if all you can do is pray. God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.